0: Good morning. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Our goal is to develop the mind of Christ on the matters of the day and then walk our faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. So, if you've wondered what in the world are we doing here on Mornings with Carmen? That is it. So, we're going to think critically about the issues of the day. We're going to uh, seek to apply the mind of Christ to those issues that each and every one of us might be more fully equipped for the good works that God has prepared in advance for each of us to do today. So I'm going to lead off with um, a conversation here about uh, about vaccines. And I recognize I am going to conflate a couple of issues. So I know that going in. Um, First of all, let's just take a quick assessment here of what's going on with COVID. Um, India and Brazil find themselves in what I would describe as genuine national emergencies as some argue that the United States of America is no longer, if it ever was, in a national emergency related to this. So there are conversations about where the word crisis should be used and where the word crisis should not be used. That might be a conversation you want to engage in today. Many Americans are choosing not to be vaccinated. I've got a lot of headlines related to that from across the country. Um, Many, many reasons are given, and the populations giving those reasons are very diverse. Um, There are some Who have not been and are not going to get uh, vaccines because they don't get vaccinated, they don't get vaccines of any kind. Uh, And then there are people who have already had COVID and they see no reason to to get vaccinated uh, and their own antibodies, uh, you know, are at work. So that's a conversation that's being had as well. There are others who don't trust the pace of the vaccines development, are concerned about. the uh the potential long-term unknown effects down the road others don't trust this brand new mRNA vaccine technology so i get it i'm communicating with you that i get it still others are simply you know this is this is what i've heard many many people that uh that i know say you know what i'm just really careful about what i put in my body and um i'm not putting that in my body at least not right now so um the real question i think that is going to come down The road uh, is whether or not those who choose not to be vaccinated will be able to, let's say, travel abroad. Um, Foreign countries may well require uh, you to be vaccinated before you, you know, before you cross their sovereign borders. Like we get that. We get that countries get to decide things for themselves. Um, National sovereignty matters. Yes, I know that provokes a conversation about what's happening on the U.S. southern border. Like I get it. Um, I think that of maybe more actual concern for a lot of Americans who are choosing not to get vaccinated are the standards being put in place by commercial event venues, including places where you might be used to uh, going to watch professional sporting events. Um, There are colleges and universities that are requiring students to uh, have the COVID vaccine before they return to campus, And, and there are conversations about mass transit as well. So I recognize there are environments where these conversations are taking place Uh, at the commercial level. I also recognize that, as predicted, there's a very robust forgery industry up and running to supply people with COVID vaccine cards uh, via the black market. I get it. One headline out of Connecticut caught my eye. This is where the conflation of issues begins. And so I want to point that out even as I read to you the headline Um, And then we're going to bring Matthew Hawkins on to talk about this. Uh, This has already passed the Connecticut House. It is now on its way to the Connecticut Senate. And the governor has already said he will sign it. It is a bill ending religious vaccine exemptions for Connecticut public schools. Connecticut is currently one of 45 states with a religious exemption from childhood vaccinations. And thousands of students currently attend uh, Connecticut public schools under a religious exemption from vaccination. Um, that includes measles. And so that one is really, I think, um, the the critical conversation point. However, um, I think we would be foolish not to recognize that a COVID vaccine, which is not currently on the required list of childhood vaccinations, um, is likely coming as a requirement in the future. All right, that's my setup. Matt Hawkins will be with us next. We are going to talk about religious Uh, implications and religious freedom related to COVID. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins, former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission- the Southern Baptist Convention. He uh, tweets at MT Hawk. Matt, welcome back.
2: Good morning, Carmen. Good to be back.
0: All right, I have set the ball on the tee. Um, yeah. Take a swing at it. The intersection yeah. of COVID restrictions and um, and this interesting change in Connecticut, uh, or pending change anyway. It's, it's it's halfway there in terms of a law. Um, yeah, uh, removing religious exemptions for childhood vaccinations for school attendance.
2: Yes. So, uh, like you, like you, uh, entered with your, uh, caveat in your, in your opener, look, we, we got to understand this stuff is complex. Uh, and I I think that's fair. Um, but complexity, uh, number one, it ought to require us to be, try to be as precise in our language and our, and our discussion as possible. Uh, but also it also need not, um, uh, let us use complexity as an excuse, right? To mm-hmm. uh, not l- lean into this and and r- really figure out what the best way forward is, particularly for Christians, right? Um, and for fellow citizens in a, in a country like the U.S. So, uh, complexity, yes, um, but fear, no, right? Um, and so that's kind of where I start with a lot of this. And you know, frankly, I think I think you're right. Uh, the religious exemption stuff and vaccines. I'm afraid it's going to come to a head at some point, I, probably not this year, um, but I think you see enough of these kinds of uh, uh, conflicts kind of bubbling below the surface or even you know here on the, in the headlines that uh, make me, me concerned that this kind of vaccine herd immunity arguments are, is going to come face-to-face and clash with uh, religious exemption arguments, um, and that's a shame right? Because those are two basically good things that, that we agree with and uh, or broadly think are good, right? We, we generally think that uh, respecting religious freedom and freedom of conscience is a good thing. Uh, and so that's why we have the First Amendment uh, in the Constitution. And uh, we, we broadly affirm, we do lots of work, uh, lots and lots and lots of laws on, on the books uh, at the federal level and at state and local levels that affirm that value of religious freedom and freedom of conscience. On the other hand, we also value health and wellness and love of neighbor, uh, and we value herd immunity from uh, from um, disease that lead to death right um, uh, m- mumps, smallpox, you know down the list um, measles measles. Yeah. Uh, um, they, Me- measles
0: the- is, Measles is the one that gets highlighted in this particular case, because yeah. a student um, who attends a, a Connecticut school on a uh, religious exemption from vaccination contracted measles when traveling abroad and then brought yeah. it, obviously, back home to their school. And so, you know, there is uh, measles is real. It's really bad. It's really deadly. It still really exists. And so Um, I think that one of the things, Matt, that we want to maybe help people think through is, like, do we anticipate that COVID vaccination is at some point going to be added to the list of childhood vaccinations? Because I think that then provokes the conversation nationwide. Like, the 45 states that currently provide for religious exemption, this is going to come up in all of those 45 states if they're going to add COVID to the list.
1: Right.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, I'm going to get outside of my epidemiology expert. I know lane, neither right? one of us.
0: <laughs> neither one of us are epidemiologists. So, with
2: that with that caveat, um, you know, it's a great question. On the one hand, you know, COVID is dangerous enough, and it's affected enough people that I, you know, we wouldn't be surprised to see that eventually on the list. But that's at least years down the road. Um, we don't even have a childhood-approved uh, vaccination yet. Like it doesn't exist, right? I mean, uh, every American above the age of 16 now is eligible to receive um, any of the um, you know, the emergency cleared um, FDA cleared uh, vaccines, uh, but that has not been yet been extended to children, right? Um, on the one hand, you have a situation where it seems like uh, children are not as susceptible to COVID symptoms as adults are. And so there seems to be a le- you know lesser risk for them, and number two, uh, developing vaccines is a different kind of ball game uh, when you're talking about testing on uh, children, right? And so those two things complicate the childhood vaccine thing in the first place. Um, so again, I'm going to get pretty pretty far out of my depth here because I don't know, say, how fast, uh, say, measles vaccines and other childhood related vaccines went from. You know, possible to required, right? Mm-hmm, um, and so mm-hmm. I think that that timeline, that kind of public policy timeline, uh, I think we're we're in new territory here. Uh, so I think we need to hold it lightly. I do think uh, we got to st- take a step back too, um, as far as you know how we need to be aware of this. We need to discuss it. We need to think about how we're going to approach it. I do think it's a little premature to to fret about it. Um, I mean, we're we're talking now about the you know the vaccines finally you know it's available quote unquote to all Americans uh, all adult Americans right now. Um, there are some situations at the local and state level that kind of Mess with the rollout, uh, but by and large, right, um, it's available to to our entire country now, which I frankly think is uh, pretty pretty significant and pretty remarkable, uh, given where we were a year ago. Um, the uh, but you know people are talking about mandates, right? <laughs> uh, you know, for the adult vaccines, um, and I think it's just now, you know, and I think you see you see a mix of polling data right, of people who will or will not take it or intend to or are uh, concerned about it versus people who are actually taking it. Um, And I think that data is really kind of hard to see through because I think you see different polling uh, pointing to different results. And then you also see the rollout um, and acceptance of the vaccine rolling out in different ways. And so that's really kind of a hard thing to get our head around and kind of get an accurate picture about what's really going on, right? Um, And so you have a situation where Um, you know, talking about government mandates at least are probably a little premature um, for the grown-up vaccines. Um, But you also have a situation where private businesses, you know, yeah. uh, corporate commercial corporations. Bu- commercial businesses are
0: definitely putting they, stuff in place already.
2: Yeah, they're definitely putting stuff yeah. in place. Um, and because because why? They want to keep doing business. <laughs> yeah. Right? And they don't it's and they exactly don't want right. their business and their business activities to be an epicenter for uh, at least an epidemic version of, of a COVID breakout, right? And so um, governments are going to do, what, or I'm sorry, corporations are going to do what they're going to do. Um, and that's, of course, a different question than government mandated uh, things. Um, you know, the back to the childhood vaccination stuff. Yeah. So Connecticut uh, is trying to, you know, get this into law where you're removing religious exceptions for like, as you said, childhood uh, vaccines for attending school that doesn't yet include COVID because a COVID vaccine for children doesn't yet exist. Right. Um, So they're concerned that that might be a thing in the future. I think, Um, you know, religious vaccinations, you know, kind of stepping back and taking off my, you know, religious liberty, (laughs) <laughs> we'll okay, we, I'm going ma- to let you make
0: this point and then we got to take a break yeah
2: yeah sure um, yeah, the uh uh, it's it, you know it's one thing if a few if a handful of people in a community refuse to get the vaccine it's a, it's an exemption right but when mm-hmm. you start to get up to maybe you know fifteen twenty twenty five percent you know a, a significant portion of the population who is refusing to get vaccinated then you start to mess with herd immunity and then all of a sudden the what what uh, some people call the uh, the free rider scenario actually starts to mess with the uh, you know uh, the right. prospect for illness and health, uh, and that's where it gets tenuous. And uh, we got to see where this stuff goes with uh, COVID and attitudes towards other vaccines.
0: All right. Um, so we're going to continue this conversation for sure in the future. But when we come back, um, Matt Hawkins and I are going to pivot topics. We're going to talk about Walter Mondale's private faith and his public life. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. public life and private faith in the intersection thereof. Uh, Matt Hawkins and I have both read an article about Walter Mondale, the private faith of a public servant. Um, You highlighted uh, a key key paragraph, so I'm going to let you share it and reflect on it.
2: Yeah, it was a pretty interesting post here at a a blog on Patheos called uh, the Anxious Anxious Bench. And uh, you got two folks basically reflecting on uh, this topic of uh, Walter Mondale's, quote, private life of a public, private faith of a public servant. And, uh, you know, I am not a Mondale expert by any scenario, um, but it was an interesting article because these two uh, authors kind of banter back and forth, some some history, uh, some political history, and some questions related to it. And uh, here's here's a excerpt from from this uh, from this discussion: How could Mondale preserve a public quote wall of separation unquote between church and state, and privately draw on religious or spiritual resources to arrive at personal political positions? And was his inability to effectively give a rationale for what – and, and was his inability to effectively give a rationale for what he was doing symptomatic of a broader mainline Protestant dilemma, unquote. So that's that's a lot in there, and that those couple, of parag- uh, couple of sentences kind of leapt out for me to be like, Carmen, and I need to talk about this. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So this idea um, of the separation between church and state, this is not in the constitution but it is something that people um frequently refer to when they want religious viewpoints kept out of the public square. Um so maybe remind us a little bit of where that phrase comes from um and then uh, and then let's talk about this this drawing upon religious or spiritual resources to arrive at personal political positions, even, even by those individuals yeah. who, who will absolutely defend a separation between church and state in, uh, when other people try to bring their faith to bear.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, and this uh, is rich, you know, this is a big, big uh, kind of focal point in uh, American political lore, right? Uh, The wall of separation between church and state. And uh, Mondale was quoted as as citing uh, Thomas Jefferson, who first... Uh, coined the term. Uh, Jefferson seems to have been riffing actually on, uh, bl- we believe, uh, uh, Roger Williams, who talked about a wall of, se- you know, a wall that separated the garden of the church from the, you know, the <laughs> I guess the, I'm going to butcher the quote, but uh, the, you know, basically the jungle of the state, uh, basically the wilderness of the state, right? And so Thomas Jefferson was riffing on that. And so a lot of people, a lot of secularists, uh, or people who are kind of predisposed to getting religion out of politics completely. Um, they view the wall as keeping the state protected from the church. Right. Uh, whereas we as Christians, uh, frequently believe that the wall of separation is, ten- is intended to protect the church from the state. Right. And, uh, so, uh, you know, we have Americans on, who come at that wall of separation, right, from two different angles. Um, and, you know, uh, there is uh, people do people call this these authors called it a um, a constitutional principle, right? Um, I think you can get there, uh, but the words separation of church and state are actually not in the Constitution, right? I think we get the principle from the First Amendment and others, and also um, uh, Article Six, where it says that you can you can't provide a religious test for office, right? Uh, so I think you could say it's a constitutional principle, but let's remind people the separation of church and state is not in the constitution as, as text. Right. Um, and so we do believe in separation of the institutions of church and state, but that's another thing to try to assert that we're separating religion from public life. Right. Um, and Mm -hmm. religion from public service and religion from, um, public policy. Um, and so people, people who come at, um, uh, public policy issues from, a religiously informed position, uh, have every right to do so. And that includes whether you're Walter Mondale or his critic, Jerry Falwell Sr., Mm -hmm. Uh, who basically accused uh, Mondale of both benefiting, politically speaking, from the fact that his uh, father was a, a minister and his father, uh, grandfather was a minister, uh, but then say that quote, I've never used religious influence to promote myself. And so Falwell basically called him out on that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it does to this author's question. I, I think it does, uh, it it is symptomatic of, uh, kind of what Mondale's kind of difficulty uh, navigating that public life versus, uh, you know, faith inspired public policy interests versus trying to refrain from bringing his faith in the public square. I think that really is uh, symptomatic of a broader mainline Protestant dilemma. And we've been talking about it for generations. uh, And that continues today.
0: Yeah, I also thought one of the things I, I felt like this particular piece missed was the 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 year like, right. So 1976, Uh One of the things that's observed here is that Christianity—this is a quote from the article—Christianity was not yet firmly connected with the political right. So a Mm -hmm. Methodist minister's son who exemplified the virtues of honesty, decency, and concern for racial minorities and the poor did not have to answer skeptical questions of whether he was a true Christian. What the article ignores, I think, um, Matt, is what happened just prior to that and how the landscape then shifted politically on the the subject of abortion. And Roe v. Wade— is is just prior to this right, and so by thousand nine hundred and seventy six yeah. we still have a nation that is coming to terms with the roe v Wade decision, and we have mainline denominations who are um, lining up on a on a um, uh, on a pro choice side of those conversations and so I think that the article ignores the impact of roe v Wade on mainline Protestant denominations and the yep. alignment of the Democratic Party with abortion. And I think Mondale was caught right in the middle of that transition. And so, you know, the article yeah. makes the observation that by 1984, we then have these fixed positions of the right and the left. Um, and the the article says a time when the meaning of Christianity and politics was rapidly changing. So I just uh, yeah. I, I, I appreciate your willingness to talk about the subject. We got to you and I got to leave it right there today. But um, I do think these are the kinds of conversations that help people sort through how things have changed in the political and religious landscape in the United States of America, yeah. you know, in their lifetimes. Because, you know, although you don't remember yeah. Walter Mondale, many of yeah. us are old enough to remember him. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, or his service as vice president, Jimmy Carter as president, like some of us actually do. That, yeah. that is in our lived memory. All right. Um, hey, thank you so much for joining us today. That's Matthew Hawkins. You can find him on Twitter at M.T. We'll be right back. All right. I realize that not everybody is on Twitter, um, but Twitter is a driving force in journalism, and it actually is a substantial voice in uh, the conversation that is taking place among what I will describe as um, uh, particularly Reformed Christians, but increasingly uh, a wide wide array of, let's say, Christian thinkers. And so Chris Martin's going to join us, and he's going to tell us what even is Christian Twitter um, and the appeal for um, what we would call performative grievance. These are things that he's addressing in a series in his, uh, in his newsletter. Uh, he's calling it the Christian Twitter series. He's helping us understand what's going on on social media among Christians. We're also going to talk about a piece that he has posted at the Gospel Coalition um, that I found totally fascinating. It's called The Human Stock Market. Yep, that's arrived. We'll be right back.
1: Not too long ago, a friend of mine snapped a photo of me at my desk. I had three computers running, I was talking on the phone, and texting on my cell, all at the same time. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. You probably have moments like that too. Technology can run your life, and it's never more true than for your teen. So, have you stepped out of your digital world lately to connect with your teen? Have you made a date this week to have coffee with your daughter or take your son to the driving range? I'm not one to discourage the use of technology, but keep it in its place. This time, turn the cell phone off and take some time for eye-to-eye communication with your teen. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: one of our favorite people to talk to in all the world. He is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. He's the author of the Terms of Service newsletter, which you can find at Substack. Um, Chris, thanks for coming back today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me again.
0: Christian Twitter. Okay, you have a whole series on this, so we probably can't till every, um, every line of this soil. So let's start with this. What even is Christian Twitter?
1: Um, So on Twitter, there are different neighborhoods of people who gather around different affinities, interests, um, likes and dislikes, political preferences, faiths um, within any social media platform. Obviously, if you log on to a social media platform, whichever one is your favorite, Facebook, Twitter or or otherwise – you're not looking to engage with like everyone else who's on the platform, the tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions in some cases. And so you're likely to fall into some sort of, I call them neighborhoods, um, especially on Twitter. Twitter is the, the reason I'm kind of focusing on Twitter and a lot of what I was writing in this piece and in this series is um, Twitter is the place is sort of the window to the world, a social media platform in a way that I'll, a few others aren't. I mean, Facebook has always been about connecting you with friends or at least acquaintances, right? I think all of us would say none of us are actually friends with all of our Facebook friends, but people you at least somewhat somehow know, maybe you just met them in passing at a conference, or uh, maybe they're you know a long-term friend from childhood. Uh, Twitter is very different. Uh, Twitter is all about connecting strangers. Um, certainly, you can connect with friends, and that's totally appropriate, but it's much more broad than that. And so Mm -hmm. on Twitter, you have a lot of people connecting with total strangers who become online acquaintances and maybe even some form of virtual friend. Um, but within Twitter, it's, it's always been interesting. There are different, there are different quote, Twitters within Twitter. There's NBA Twitter. There's Star Wars Twitter. There's science Twitter. There's black Twitter. There's book Twitter. And and what that means, it's not like all these things have their own apps or um, it's not like there are these like uh, rooms within the Twitter universe that you like have to tap. Oh, I want to go to this Twitter. It's, that's not how it works. It's very amorphous. It's very undefined. Um, usually these Twitter communities are... Um, informally governed, kind of run by influential voices within those spaces. Um, so, what will often happen? There's, and what was interesting to me is I found that there's actually been research done on this with the <laughs> social media, uh, with the Social Media Research Institute and the Pew Research Center. Back in 2014, there was actual like sociological studies done on these different Twitter communities and how they interact with one another. Um, And on the post I wrote for this, there are some pretty nerdy-looking, like, uh, graphics of – like, infographics of all these Twitter users that are kind of, like, swarming around maybe one big influencer. And then those communities uh, often communicate with with each other. Uh, You obviously see this a lot with, like, politics or things like that. So to summarize, Christian Twitter is a subsection of of Twitter uh, that is – home to uh, christian influencers uh christian social media users and what makes this a community is often on a given day there will be one to five maybe different major topics of conversation that that a lot of the most vocal and influential users within the christian twitter neighborhood start communicating about sometimes it's almost as if they're all in a group text message and they all decide to start tweeting, hey, guys, let's start talking about X. And then you just see them all tweeting independently of one another. And then sometimes you see them feeding off of each other. And within that, the influencers, I would say, drive the conversation, start the conversation. And then within kind of their, um, you know, their fire starting ability and in, in the sort of like they're the Tinder that gets the fire going. And then a lot of other less influential, but non- nonetheless active Christian Twitter users will reply to them or quote tweet and add their own comments or things like that. So that's, it's really hard to define, but it's a community of Christians on Twitter who interact with each other around similar ideas, topics, and things that are interesting to them.
0: And sometimes it's not very Christian.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So let's talk about um, this uh, this one primary issue that you that you lift up, which is the success of performative grievance. What what is that? And um, because I think that people uh, who are not on Twitter, like imagine that there's something productive happening on Twitter.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, so Uh, that's that's
1: that's that's genuinely hilarious. Yeah, there's yeah. And it's understandable why you might think that. Um, And I think I don't think. Like Christian Twitter is uh, totally unproductive. Um, like, am I, think, I am it,
0: I am I on Christian Twitter? If I'm on yes, Twitter and yeah. I'm a Christian, am I on Christian Twitter?
1: Yeah, and I, because I think that's. I, I, I mean,
0: my 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 Twitter universe includes basically journalists and yeah. recognizable Christians. That's yeah. pretty much my crowd. So those are
2: my right, neighborhoods.
1: So, okay, right. So I think like, and and I think you would recognize this because I think you're pretty observant in this way. Like when you see. All of your, like, if you could isolate all of your, the Christians that you follow, like the influential Christians, people you have on the show or otherwise, Mm -hmm. and you're like, man, they, They've all really started like orbiting around this one particular subject. That's Christian Twitter at work. It's like, oh, man, everybody Mm -hmm. started talking about X. That's – you kind of see that happening. And so, yeah, one of the – I think there are three major problems with Christian Twitter that I've observed. And I say this as a participant, not an outsider. I've – I actually have backed off of Twitter and I'm not using it. Um, I'm not logged into my personal account or anything like that right now. And it will be that way for, uh, for a long time I think. Um, because I got sick of a lot of what I was seeing. And the three major issues that I see are, yeah, performative grievance, um, uh, conflict, and one other that I'm forgetting right now. But the, um, the the first one that I highlight here is is performative grievance. And performative grievance is a term that's kind of started to be th- thrown around um, a lot more lately. And oh, the third one is the prevalence of parasocial relationships, which, um, well, uh, that'll be in a few weeks and we'll surely talk about that. But performative grievance is when you act like you've been offended or hurt or <laughs> angered or somehow otherwise victimized. Uh, mm-hmm. in, and you, you act that way in order to gain attention and make someone else look like an aggressor, an offender, or a bad person, when in fact you weren't really hurt or angered at all. You're Mm -hmm. just trying to get attention and make the other person look bad. Um, And so this runs rampant in politics. It runs rampant on social media. um, And I think ultimately the reason we engage in performative grievance or acting like we've been hurt when we haven't actually been uh, is because it's the best way to start conflict – Um, On social media, which is the number one way to get attention Uh, I mean if if you like a a lot of people come to me for social media like strategy, right? Like hey How do I grow my following? Um, I kind of tongue-in-cheek joke with people all the time that the number one way to gain followers on social media is just be mad just just be bad. Um, just complain, which, and talk which, about which, how which is clearly.
0: Yeah. Not what Chris is recommending to anyone. No,
1: definitely just not going ahead yeah, and saying that.
0: That's not yeah, who he right. is on social media uh, and that's not who he's advocating that we be either. No,
1: no. But but the sad thing is, is that is the best way to get a following. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, and you so, and, and I have to take – we have to take a yeah, break. Yeah, sure,
0: sure. I'm stomping all over our time today. Um, uh, but, hey, let me – if you listened to the show yesterday, you know that we talked some about this yesterday with Doug Bursch and his new book, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. If you want to go back and grab that conversation – It was um, at the bottom of the second hour yesterday, so you can grab the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app. Chris Martin and I will be right back because I really, really, really want to talk with him about how much he thinks people would pay to choose what I have for breakfast. It's the human stock market, and it has arrived. We'll be right back. Uh, if you've ever wondered, you know, like, hey, this is radio, so we don't actually get to see what Carmen is wearing. um, How much would you pay for Carmen to post a picture of herself in whatever robe you decided that she was wearing when she came into the radio studio at her house to, you know, do radio? Because that's the question that is now before us in the human stock market. This is crazy. You can read it at the gospelcoalition.org. The human stock market is here by Chris Martin. Chris, we have arrived at this point.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I know. So, How, I mean,
0: like so let's just talk about this. How does this work? People are actually like paying to decide and then other people are taking payment for other people to decide everything from what? What they're eating for breakfast to the coffee beverage that they're ordering in the drive-through to what they're driving to maybe even uh, what they're naming their kid?
1: Yeah, there's um, there's this new wave of platforms. I guess you could call them social media apps. They're kind of like yeah, they're they're more related to mainstream social media apps uh, that are giving influencers the ability to monetize every minute decision in their lives. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is called New New, uh, and I'm guess I think there are a couple others that aren't listed in the article that I wrote, but there are a few kind of vying for the the market in this space. But the gist is, you know, if you're a social media influencer, maybe you have 500,000 followers on Instagram. Uh, Or a hundred thousand followers on Twitter and there are some ways that you can monetize that make money You could sell ads you could um, you know make a post on Instagram with some beauty product and and, uh, Tell your followers to go check it out or whatever There are all kinds of kind of influencer marketing things and ways people with large social media followings make money Um, but those brand deals are sometimes hard to buy, hard to get, and they're not always available, and they don't always make much money. So, a new way that influencers are making money is by going into an app like this and saying, "Hey, should I take my dog for a walk or go to the gym?" And <laughs> essentially, users it's like so fans. It's so crazy.
0: Hey, yeah, I just want to I just want to let everybody know, Jen, Jim, uh, from Simsbury, Jennifer, all weighing in: zero dollars, $0, zero pennies, zero of any other currency. <laughs> So I I hear you I get it I'm don't worry I'm not ge- getting involved in this Okay go
1: ahead Chris <laughs> okay. So um, or like yeah Should I have Should I have an omelet for breakfast or should I have cereal or and and oh. effectively this is if you're a fan of one of these people you could like buy votes like All right I want a hundred votes to be able to cast so I'll pay ten bucks and then I'll oh. cast my votes on what this person should do and you basically you know, get to control whatever aspects of these lives that the influencers have put up on the stock market. Okay. So do people
0: not have like, see, this is, seems so crazy to me that, yeah. okay, there's so much need in the world and there are, I mean, like literally anything would be better to do with your time yeah. and your energy and your resources. It just seems like, like this is a stewardship conversation Christians need to have and also the the decision making part of this like right i am not giving up my decision making in the relationship to the stewardship of what i am eating or what i am wearing or where i am going to people who are commercializing that like i this whole conversation seems so contrary to the way christians are called to live
1: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i think so and and the the um the problem is is there 's a market for it, so uh, mm. i mean if you the the number one thing kids want to be today is mm. an internet influencer they want to be a famous youtuber or an instagram star. I mean, there are literal studies that have been done that gone are the days of wanting to be a professional athlete or a doctor or a firefighter. I mean those kids certainly still want to be those things, but the number one most common thing kids want to be is an internet influencer because here's Mm -hmm. the thing and some people might think like that's insane it's it's not when you really think about it like it is logical kids watch these people on youtube or otherwise and they see people who get to have fun and make lots of money doing it so it's not like the idea of of kids wanting to be i've i've heard people kind of be exasperated like how could you like that seems so shallow and lame well i mean wouldn't you uh if you could do something for your career and just have a lot of fun and make a ton of money wouldn't you i mean there there's an appeal to that like there is like mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so for kids that's what they see is they see these people doing goofy stuff on youtube um you know like skateboarding and and jumping into a giant ball pit and then they post that video on YouTube and get a million views and then they make ten thousand dollars on that one video and like that's real, and kids see that and they want to do it and so If you're going to become one of those huge influencers, you have to start figuring out how to monetize that uh, from the get go. And and so, you know, these influencers don't have health care from a company or they don't have a salary. So they're looking to monetize. It's like, well, I don't really know if I want an omelet or cereal anyway, so I might as well have my fans pay me to decide which one I want. So that's that's the logic behind it. I'm not saying it's right, but that's the logic behind it.
0: Well, and so I think that in terms of equipping our listeners for the conversations of the day, it's helpful to know that it's happening. It's also helpful to get us thinking um, about how to respond. Um, one listener, Scott, says, so instead of being an influencer, they're influenced by cash votes or, you know, a monetized system here. Isn't that just a form of perpetual voyeurism? I think it's, it's a form yes. of slavery. I would describe well, it as I... a form of slavery. You're selling yeah. yourself.
1: Yeah. And it is a form of per- per- perpetual voyeurism. And quite frankly, all of us are doing that for free already on social media. So who, who mm. who's the fool? Is it the fool who's doing it for free on Facebook, you and me and everyone else? Or is it the person who's actually making money on it? Right. Um, so I think social media is a uh, professional voyeurism that a lot of us are just volunteering to put ourselves up on the pedestal for. Um, And so I think I think that uh, I mean, social media is performative at this point. Um, I mean, uh, there's this subtle but ubiquitous desire to perform for notifications that tempts us to turn every bit of our lives into public content. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I think, uh, yeah, this seems kind of goofy. And it uh, but uh, what I think I think we should think about is um, a lot of us are guiding our lives. A lot of us are guilty of this already even though we don't make a dime. Um, We're deciding who we are and we're taking pictures of our lives and posting them on Instagram or organizing our house decor in such a way that maybe it's a bit more appealing Um, Or putting our kids in cute outfits so that so that people will give us more likes and comments on how cute They are on Facebook or whatever we're we're already shaping our lives to get the approval of other people They're just giving us their taps of likes and comments and shares They're not giving us actual money And so I think a lot of us are honestly guilty of what we see taking place in these apps Uh, We're just getting affirmation. We're not getting cash
0: So interesting Chris, you always bring new thoughts to the table. Um, thank you for reading things we don't read and paying attention to things that you know, frankly, are not even on our radar. Sometimes um, we really appreciate it. Looking forward to the continuation of your series on your Substack about Christian Twitter and you know other thoughts you're having about other things. I love it. Thank you. Appreciate you being here. Yeah. See you later. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Martin Seventeen. We'll be right back. All right, uh, some of you texting in, reminding us of the words of Jesus to Peter in uh, John 21. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go. But let me tell you, the day is going to come when you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else is going to dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Yep, there's a Bible verse for everything. All right, get into the Word of God today. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 at the outset of the next hour, if you want to turn there with me. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.